Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Forty years ago this year, a freshman legislator from South Windsor wrote and engineered the passage of one of the first and by far the most important consumer protection laws in history, the Lemon Law, a law that when fully implemented required auto manufacturers to repair defective vehicles in a timely manner or replace the vehicle or refund the purchase price. On this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, John J. Woodcock III, father of the Lemon Law, tells us about the origin, the fight to gain passage of, and the years of battle with car manufacturers that followed Connecticut's birth of the Lemon Laws in 1982 and 1984. The Lemon Law Turns 40, a special Grading the Nutmeg episode with John J. Woodcock III, coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. Most of us who drive around today are lucky enough to drive around in cars that are pretty well made, that last a long time, and that we can rely on to be ready to go when we need them. That may be the case today, but it certainly wasn't the case 40 years ago. One of the reasons you can drive that reliable car is a piece of legislation that was passed in the Connecticut Assembly that was invented championed and nurtured into life by today's guest on Grading the Nutmeg, John J. Woodcock III, the father of America's first lemon law. John, thank you for coming to Grading the Nutmeg. Oh, it's great to be here. I've just been fascinated with this story, and I have to tell people right at the outset that there is an absolutely astonishing collection of records and oral histories in the archives and special collections of the Ella Hubert Library at Central Connecticut State University. It's the John J. Woodcock Lemon Law Records and Oral Histories. So the story we're about to tell is there. It's a story that the deeper you dig into it, the more interesting it gets. So having said that, John... What does it feel like 40 years later to have been the father of the Lemon Law? Well, it's a great honor. It gives me tremendous uh, satisfaction, and I'm so glad that I made the commitment I made back then. And I think it's a great history for people to familiarize themselves with. It shows how our democracy works uh, in an ideal way. It shows the power of citizenry when they're permitted to express their feelings about something. It addresses a huge, huge consumer problem that we had back in the 70s and 80s. It led to a total change in big business's uh, approach to handling consumer complaints. Lemon laws have spread to other products, uh, but the automobile lemon law that we passed in 1982 started it. We had tremendous resistance from big business. This lasted for eight years. We've now seen it passed in all 50 states, along with many foreign countries. 
I'm very proud of it, and I'm uh, just happy to have had an opportunity to participate in changing consumer marketplace in such a dramatic fashion. And ultimately, the industry benefited from it. They're making better cars now. They can charge more money. They can extend their warranties to provide more protection for consumers. The industry has bought into the concept of mediation and arbitration, which was something that we really had to put a gun to their head to get them to do. They were extremely difficult opponents, and they went at us from every angle, legislatively, legally, in Washington, you name it. They threw the money at us, and uh, the power of people's voices overcame that. And one of the most interesting things to me about this law as someone who has kind of watched Connecticut politics several decades now is that you were able to pass this breakthrough, absolutely brand new legislation as a freshman member of the Connecticut General Assembly. How did you do that? That's a good question, uh, Walt. You know, when you go into the General Assembly, it's a pretty intimidating place. I was 35 years old when we passed the Lemon Law, and I did what most freshmen are told to do their first year. I kept my mouth shut, sat in the back row, tried to take in as much as I could take in, didn't get as much attention, which I was told that's the way you want to break break into this place if you want to go anywhere. Uh, my second year, which is the year that the Lemon Law passed, I was presented with this, this uh, situation, extremely unique, that made me deviate from the course of behavior that I was told to engage in. So what happened? You started out as, uh, you know, go along to get along, freshman legislature, and by your second year, now you are ready to challenge the assembly to take on a kind of legislation that hasn't ever been done anywhere. That's a big shift. Well, what happened is I heard about this proposal through an Irma Bumbach column. She was a humorist back in those days. She was funny, and uh, she must have been in hundreds of papers. So Irma Bombeck is the mother of the Lemon Law? Well, she's the grandmother. There you go. What happened is she was writing a column, and she was promoting or advocating a Lemon Law for marriages. And I, <laughs> and I, don't, ever read her, I don't ever read her column, but I, I saw the Lemon Law. Being a lawyer, a young lawyer with a general practice, I knew that they were making lousy cars. I knew they were charging a lot of money, and I knew the Connecticut law did not provide for any form or methodology to get redress if you had a, a lemon car. I knew that. She, she was mentioning legislation that was being discussed in California, and I contacted California, and my staff helped me with that. And I had them send me the bill. It was called the Lemon Bill. They were getting nowhere with it because of the power of the industry. They sent it to me. I put it in as a bill, and I'm sitting in my office, my little tiny cubbyhole at the state capitol on a Monday morning, and I get a phone call from a reporter from the Associated Press, which took me totally by surprise. I couldn't believe I'm getting this phone call. And they had heard about my lemon bill, and they wanted to talk to me about it. And so I had a conversation. I don't remember the specifics, but you know, I knew the legislation pretty well because I'd written it and uh, familiarized myself very much with the California proposal. I answered their questions, and I hung up the, uh, the phone. And next thing I know, I'm getting media phone calls from all over the, all over the place, uh, Connecticut Press, Detroit, Washington, New York State. And what happened is when it hit the wires, uh, Walt, it hit the people. People were attracted by whatever was on the wires. 
They like the sound of lemon bill. A lot of people immediately identified with the subject matter or their own personal experiences. And next thing you know, I'm getting phone calls from all over the state of Connecticut from consumers who have been stuck with these cars. And car stories are very personal. You know, uh, I, I think it might be difficult for a younger person today, someone who wasn't around driving in the 70s and 80s, to realize just how poorly made many of the cars back then were. Obviously, there was a real problem. Well, it was a, it, it was a tremendous problem because here in Connecticut, if you paid for a new car and the car wouldn't work or operate or function, you had no recourse other than to file a warranty claim against the manufacturer. Dealers didn't have any exposure because they didn't give you a warranty. It was the manufacturer's warranty that you had to avail yourself of. And that in order to do that, you had to go to Superior Court, which involves hiring a lawyer, a lot of expenses associated with that, getting your own expert witness, and living with that lemon car for three or four years until the case gets before a judge. That was just not something that people could do. I have a clip that I'm going to play from Dan Brochu, who is one of the people who I guess became very active with you in getting the Lemon Law passed. And this is from a retrospective symposium that was held at uh, Central Connecticut State University 10 years ago on the 30th anniversary of the Lemon Law. He talks about his experience just a little bit. This is a summary of his description of his experience with an Oldsmobile Omega that he bought in the 1980s. Yes, I did. I did buy an Oldsmobile Omega in 1980. I think the primary driving force was an apoplectic anger. My blood pressure must have been out of sight because I was so angry with General Motors. But if you look at some of the things that I had to experience, while my car wasn't available for my family to use. We couldn't go to the beach. We couldn't go to the store. I couldn't drive to work. I was bumming rides all the time. I was using buses. You didn't get a rental car in those days. This is what I came up against, and this is what really, really, really made me angry. Denial. That's not possible. You're lying. That's what I was told by General Motors, okay? You must be driving your car wrong. That's what I was told. You minimalize your critics and you wear them down. And boy, did they. The image was first. Their image was first. They didn't want to do anything that would destroy their public perception. How indicative was Dan Brochu's experience of the kinds of stories you were hearing? Uh, Dan was Dan was a uh, exhibit A for lemonhood. I mean, he was he was a poster child. He went to great effort. And I applaud him to this day to tell his story. He did it with passion. He did it with humor. The national media loved him. He was very, very typical of, of the lemon owners that I would hear from. The collection that you make reference to, Walt, has hundreds and hundreds of stories documented in there about people's experiences with a lemon car. It was one of the most powerful weapons that we had in advocating and getting the General Assembly to approve it. But we have hundreds and hundreds of those letters. And like I said before, the lemon owners, it's a very intimate relationship that they have with their new vehicle. And if it goes bad, you can't stop them from talking about it. That was my experience more often than not. So clearly you touched a nerve and there's no question about that. 
and you're getting a lot of press, and I have a sense that the press is kind of instrumental in getting attention for this law, but that's not always the best way for a young legislator to win friends and influence people, is it? No, I mean, human nature kicks in, and all of a sudden, you got this young guy running around with cameras chasing him in the building, and uh, everybody's noticing that. And, you know, I was able to communicate pretty well with the press. You know, I've been trained to speak to people, and and I was passionate about it. I, you know, I tried to be very loyally and very factual and not a drama queen, but just to basically tell stories, try to convince people in a low-key fashion. And uh, the press back then was extremely interested in the subject matter, and they were interested in the human angle side of it in particular. And, uh, you know, I was able to get a lot of assistance from consumers. There was some press that was negative on it, and they were they were big publications here in the state that had a lot of car dealer advertisement revenue. And I ran into that on the radio and a few other places because the car dealers are a very powerful special interest group in Connecticut. So how did you manage? It's now your second year as a legislator. How did you manage to get this law passed? I, I know from listening to the oral histories, it has... Uh, it, it, it's a story of thrills and chills and, and you know, there's, there's many twists and turns. But take us through the summary of the process to get this law through. Well, first of all, the fact that it got publicity, everybody heard about it. You know, whether you're a legislator or a media person or just a consumer or a citizen walking down the street, everybody was hearing about it. And everybody knows how important cars are to people's li- livelihood and to their lives, you know, to the way they live. So I had a strong human element. And then when I got all these contacts from uh, consumers all over the state, and when I say all over the state, I mean like every town in the state. When I got these contacts, I encouraged the people who were calling me to contact their legislator. What I did is, is, is I asked them to please write me a letter describing their experience. And they were only too happy to do that, and many of the letters were quite copious. And I asked them to please send a copy of the letter to me, to their local senator and their local representative. And they did. So I got a public hearing, which was step number one. And the public hearing happened in March of uh, 82. And uh, many people showed up at the public hearing who were lemon owners. And they told their tale of woe to the committee. And there were many, many industry people there as well, the car dealers, the manufacturers, all those folks that are involved in that industry. They were there. And it was a big brouhaha. And, you know, I testified, of course, and and the public hearing went over well for the bill. And I was able to get two chairmen of the General Law Committee to give me a vote. And it got voted out of committee by, I think it was 12 to 5 or that neighborhood, 2 to 1. And uh, we were on our way. So then after it gets out of committee, it gets even more publicity. And now, you know, it's a national story. People are following our progress every step of the way. And the more attention it got, the greater the pressure was in the building as a state capital. Then it got put in, you know, on the calendar of the House, but it was held up because the leadership had a lot of questions about it. So as a freshman, I had to go meet with all the leaders in a private room. And that, that was a knee if there ever was one. <laughs> I bet. And they... They asked me questions. You know, they had they had heard from others, you know, who had an interest in the bill, who had pointed things out to them. They'd heard from lobbyists and they'd heard from constituents. Because car dealers were, you know, are still to this day very powerful special interest group in, in various communities throughout the state. Did they see you as a major threat right out of the box? I mean, you could argue, and I think you could argue quite strongly, that the law in the long run helped the manufacturers. But 
on first blush, did they see that this was a real terrible threat? Did they marshal their resources against you right away? They did marshal the resources right away, but they opened a very, very serious wound in the public conscience by saying this wasn't needed, it's not necessary, it's too extreme. And they just poured salt in the wound of all these people who were begging for relief from the state legislature, the state government, anybody. So their resistance Uh, really backfired on them. It did backfire on them. There's no doubt about that. They sent executives from Detroit, came in on their private planes. They they wanted to meet with me one-on-one. I accommodated them. You know, I told them that they had a real problem. They had to take care of it. It was their problem, not mine. And I was being compelled to do my job, which was to provide some protection for people who had none. And that's what this is all about. Nothing personal. You're the one that makes the product. You're the one that profits from it. You should do something about it. Institutionally, in in the General Assembly, Walt, there are many, many ways to thwart legislation or ideas. You know, have a study on it. Don't pass this. Let's have a study. Let's look look at this more carefully. We have a clip from uh, former state senator Robert Doerr, chairman of the law committee during Second Lemon Law, which we'll talk about. But he has a, a very nice comment about that exact thing. Let's listen to that. These were crafty old men. And I just want to explain to people who aren't familiar with the Connecticut General Assembly how something can happen in the General Assembly. And I'm just going to give you a quick example. And that concerning state parks sounds like it might be improving state parks. No, that actually closed state parks. So the language could have easily been stripped out of that, eliminated special provisions, or essentially made the consumer situation worse. Make no mistake. And we were just two young guys. We had our work cut out for us, indeed. And yet... For all the things that can go wrong and for all of the ways that these, you know, these wise veterans in the assembly can manipulate things to make what they want to have happen or not happen, we're still able to get this law through. How'd you do it? Well, you know, I had success with the leaders. You know, I refined, I refined the bill in, in various ways. I tightened things up. And, you know, I have to look at the collection to tell you what specifically I did. I don't remember. But I, I, do, I do know I made some adjustments. We went and we had a debate in the House. It was a long debate. I was up you know, defending the bill for maybe an hour, hour and a half. I don't know how long. But it's all there in the collection, you know, transcript, et cetera. I was successful in the House. I had some Republican support. Uh, and I nurtured that and brought these Republican uh, colleagues along as co-sponsors. I wanted to get as much momentum as I could behind it because I knew I was going to have trouble in the Senate where the Waterbury powerhouse is. And I knew that the industry had hired three former state senators as lobbyists to uh, defeat the bill. And even though everybody's nice to your face, but I knew there was a lot going on behind my back. I guess the Senate, if you're a, if you're a young legislator going before the Senate to pass something, you do that with a fair amount of deference and trepidation, right? And yet you were able to get the law passed there. Yeah. What happened is you're totally right on that. You definitely, definitely, uh, it's a different atmosphere on the third floor than the first floor or second floor. And I went up there. I had the Senate, I had the chairman of the general law committee, the Senate chairman supporting me, but she was a freshman senator. And it's good old boys club in the, in the state Senate back then. It really was a good old boys club. And the uh, primary voice for the auto industry in the Senate was Billy Sullivan, 
who's an old-time Waterbury senator and best friends with the president of the Connecticut Automotive Trade Association. And I had those three ex-senators lobbying against me night and day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Another clip from former state senator Robert Doerr talks about something Sullivan told him. Uh, when I was first elected to the Senate and before the signing to the General Law Committee, one thing I was warned about was watch out for John Woodcock. He's Trump. Stay away from John Woodcock. He's only going to dig a hole for you. The bill is going to get killed. Sullivan and some other people really, they were out to stop your bill, and yet you got it passed. Right. It, 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 I, I got it passed because what I did, which was probably one of the more more uh, clever things that I'd done in my, my career up there, is I had an amendment in my pocket when I walked into the Senate, and the amendment provided that, and I, I had researched this very thoroughly, so I know what I know what I was doing. The amendment provided that consumers would have to first go to arbitration if the manufacturer had a arbitration system, a program that complied, and this is the key part, in all respects with FTC Rule 703 which was a federal a set of regulations passed in the mid-70s that provided for creation of arbitration mediation system guidelines and rules and regulations. I had that in my pocket, and I, I, I used that as a means to get them to listen to me a little bit, and they did, and they checked with their manufacturer, people that they did business with about this, and the feedback they got from them was, yeah, we, we, we do have arbitration systems. That probably will soften the blow. And uh, I gave them the amendment. They put it on the, on the bill in the Senate, and it passed in the Senate. So then it went on to be signed by Governor O'Neill, and the country's, the world's first lemon law was on the books. How did you Correct. feel, you know, when it was signed into law by the governor and you'd actually done a history-making change? How did it feel? Well. Number one, I was exhausted because it was a 24-hour job for many months, and it was coming at me from every single direction. But once I got through the exhaustion, I started realizing how important the bill was, and then as the national publicity just kept building up and building up and building up, I realized it was a national problem, which I kind of knew it was anyway because it was a national industry, and they make the same cars in Connecticut as they make in North Dakota. And it felt great. It felt really good. I felt a sense of relief. I, I just said to myself, I hope this works uh, because I I had become so well known and identified with this law, which was now not the lemon bill anymore. It was a lemon law that you know if anything went wrong, then I, I'd have to get back into the, into the ring and try and straighten things out. And I knew I knew I'd also kind of worn out my welcome in some quarters up at the Capitol because of all the publicity I received. When I went and saw Governor O'Neill before he signed the bill, I said, "I'm here to answer any questions you may have, Governor. Can I help you with anything with this?" He looked at me and he smiled and he said, I know all about this bill. I hear about it when I take my morning walks because he was recovering from a heart attack. He was getting approached on Prospect Avenue by car dealers who he's known for years because he had a long career. And uh, he said, don't worry, I'm going to sign it. I, I, I knew I'd really made uh, history way back then, but I tried to low-key it well. I wanted to just kind of like settle back and let's see what happens. So there were some... Very distinctive accomplishments. I think you talk about three things. Uh, three very revolutionary ideas. Number one, we gave consumers direct legal recourse against the manufacturer of the product. 
There was no contract between the manufacturer and the consumer. The contract was with the car dealer. So the manufacturers were insulated, and you only had to rely on whatever rights you had under Uniform Commercial Code, which is no, no help to consumers. So now they could go directly after the manufacturer. New world. Number two, we defined what a lemon was. Nobody had ever done that before. A lemon was uh, a vehicle, a new vehicle, that had four major repair attempts for the same type of problem, and they were unsuccessful, or in the alternative, a vehicle that was out of service for more than 30 days because of repair efforts. And then three, if you met the definition of a lemon, then legally you could ask for a remedy, and the remedy was a refund of the full purchase price or uh, a replacement vehicle. Those are the things that uh, the Lemon Law did that were revolutionary. And they are revolutionary indeed. And and you would think with the passage of the law, you've been going at it 24-7 for months and months, that now it's time to take a victory lap and relax. But far from it, the battle was really just about to begin. The battle really accelerated. It, you're right. It was just about to begin because what happened is that people got these new rights and they, they were very happy about it. And it spread around the country like rapid wildfire because the product was the same everywhere. And now we had to make the law work for people. The court system was not the place to go. So now we had to talk about using the industry arbitration system that they had, which was addressed by my Senate amendment that I talked about before having to do with arbitration in full compliance with Rule 703. The manufacturers kind of jumped on this idea of taking control of the arbitration process, right? Well, they they did, and I encouraged that. And I said, but make sure whatever arbitration process you employ, that it's fair, impartial, and it works. So what did they do? They tried, they played games. They they really weren't sincere in their efforts. They signed this big, huge national contract with the Better Business Bureau which I, right away, I, I said, I want to see the contract. I want to see what your obligations and duties are. And they wouldn't give me a contract. I started getting complaints about the Better Business Bureau programs here in the state of Connecticut. I did a lot of research on it. I got a lot of letters from consumers describing their, their uh, experiences. More times than not, very negative with the Better Business Bureau, GM program, the Chrysler program, the Ford program. And I, I said to myself, well, we got to do something about this. I can't give people rights, and then they, they don't have a legitimate forum to exercise those rights in. So I went back to the drawing board in late 83, and I wrote Lemon Law 2, which created a state arbitration system with very, very specific rules and regulations on how it would operate, administered by the department, our, our state department of consumer protection. And it was very comprehensive legislation. It was by far the most comprehensive legislation I was ever associated with in my career as a legislator. And it gave a role to the attorney general. It, it created a system inside the Department of Consumer Protection that would have to render a decision within 60 days of a consumer filing a complaint. I had some muscle. It had teeth. Of course, it was not well. I had a very difficult time getting it through an 84. Uh, that's what Bob Doerr was talking about when he said, and he was the key vote in getting that legislation through his committee. Uh, they ambushed me. That, you know, I was told, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And then the, I was on the committee then, just to keep an eye on the Lemon Law, because I didn't want anybody you know, doing anything negative to it. And the night before, I was calling to all the members, my colleagues on the General Law Committee, and I uh, was trying to get a hold of people. Nobody was around. 
and I, that made me feel uncomfortable. When I finally got a hold of a guy down in August, it was Bill Butterly, Representative Butterly, who was kind of a new legislator. And he says, John, you you better be careful. I said, what, what, what do you mean, Bill? What are you talking about? He says, they're going to they're gonna try and make your bill a study. I said, you're kidding. He says, no, they're going to try and do it. And they did. They tried to do it, you know, the next day. They had their most effective member who was an attorney, now a lobbyist, bring out, you know, bring out their motion. I was, I was stunned. I, I assume kind of, that making a bill a study is a way of killing a bill. You kill it, yeah. You, yeah. you kill it. So I, I, I got, I got, I took my sport coat off or a suit coat off, and there's pictures in the newspaper. That's why I know I did this. And I was very passionately, probably too passionately, read them the riot act. And Gore uh, was there for that, and he was the key vote. It passed by one vote. So, so they had both chairs lined up. They did that before the uh, 83 General Assembly was seated. They had everything all figured out ahead of time in the industry. They wanted to dismantle it. The House chairman was under pocket. The uh, Senate chairman was not, Bob Doerr, even though I thought he probably was under incredible pressure. And he, he acknowledged pretty much that was the case. He only was a one-term senator. They defeated him next time he ran. Do you feel that it was this passionate defense of the second Lemon Law bill that carried the day for it? I think it was a, a contributing factor, but I think the substance of the bill and the fact that it was such a notorious piece of legislation and so new, and, and, I, and I think that my colleagues uh, sensed that there was something really underhanded going on here. And everybody knew that when you wanted to make a, something a study, what that meant. So I, I think all of those factors combined together were important. Ultimately, you were able to pass the, the law that is now called Lemon Law Two, and that's that in this arbitration process. Right, but that was only part of the battle. I got it out of committee. Then it went to four different major committees because of different components that were in it. Like I said to you previously, it was complex. It had to go to the Finance Committee because there was a fee involved. It had to go to Appropriation because there's money involved. It had to go to Judiciary for uh, legal reasons. And I forget the fourth committee, but it went through four committees. It got approved by all the committees. I had to keep, you know, writing the thing, checking with chairman and, you know, meeting with people and pushing and pushing and pushing. And it went over to the Legislative Commissioner's Office where they fine-tuned the legislation before it comes back for action by the House and Senate. And then all of a sudden, they lost the bill over there. They couldn't find it. That was very suspicious. I started getting nervous because the session was running out of time. And I call over there every day, talk to my lawyers, and he said somebody else has it, the supervisor has it, or whatever. Nobody's giving me an answer. And I'm saying, I'm running out of time here. I've got to get this legislation back here. It normally takes like, you know, 48 hours to get your bill back. And here it is two weeks. So I, I engaged the, the deputy speaker, Bob Frankel, who was a strong supporter. I said, Bob, something's not right here. Please check it out for me. You help me out here. So he called the head commissioner. Her name is Norma Cloten, and she said to, she'd get back to him, and she lo- she found the bill. That's what happened. Did somebody accidentally put it in a bottom drawer somewhere? We all think that. We all think that. That's so anyway, we got the bill back. We were running out of time, and, and then I was able, you know, because it had all these committees approval, and because we'd gone through all the back and forth with the uh, the consumers and saying we need to create a fair, impartial arbitration mediation system. Everybody knew what made sense. It passed. It passed the House and it has passed the Senate. And then we created that arbitration system in the uh, Department of Consumer Protection. Let's stop for a minute and listen to Mark Giulietti, who was at the State Department of Consumer Protection and helped implement that arbitration process, describe both how it worked 
and what the impact of it was. When Lemon Law 2 came into effect and we started the arbitration process, the way the program worked at the time was we had a pool of, uh, I think the most we ever had was about 110 volunteer arbitrators. Every hearing was overseen by three arbitrators. We trained the arbitrators, gave them the background of the Lemon Law, uh, explained what their responsibilities were, what their limitations were, and what their role was going to be as an arbitrator. For a period there, we were having more than a case a day, so we were pretty busy. Initially, we had a, a, an awful lot of our arbitration decisions appealed by the auto manufacturers. They brought the decision to court. Lo and behold, the arbitrators had much broader leeway and much more authority in fashioning the reward than the exact requirements spelled. And they weren't really requirements. What the Lemon Law spelled out were options that an arbitration panel could impose regarding a buyback or a replacement vehicle. So as time progressed, progressed there were many, many, many fewer appeals by the manufacturer. There's this arbitration process that's going in place, but the victory still isn't won, right? Because the resistance to it is continuing. Let me, let me ask you a question that I've been thinking about. One of the names that you do not hear that you think would be right in the forefront of this campaign is another Connecticut consumer advocate, Ralph Nader. Did he get involved in this at any point in helping helping get the Lemon Laws passed? I'll briefly tell you what happened, the interaction between Ralph and me, his organization. He has an, organiz an automobile organization in uh, D.C. called the Center for Auto Safety. I contacted in 82 when the Lemon Law was just starting, and I was getting a lot of support and a lot of input. I contacted them. Their, their, their executive director was a gentleman named Clarence Didlow, who was quite well known back in those days nationally. And I contacted Clarence, and I said, Clarence, this is a real problem, as you know, because uh, you represent automobile uh, buyers. We're trying to do something about it here in Connecticut that's constructive. I really welcome your support and encouragement in, in consumer advocacy circles nas nationally. And his message was, well, we're not interested. Uh, Mr. Nader uh, thinks it's a toothless law. It's a political stunt. Uh, the words to that effect. It was a brush off. I continue over the years with uh, the Center for Auto Safety, and they obviously changed their mind as time went on. But that was his, that's what happened when I asked Ralph and his organization to help me initially. Do you think that was genuine, or was it a case of not invented here? Or how did you read that? I think more the latter. I think that's what it was. You know, that, that happens in, when you're making public policy. If you get an idea, some people wish they had it first. And uh, that may be what happened here. I don't know. Well, I'd like to give Ralph the benefit of doubt. He's done a lot of great things for people. But I'll tell you right now, uh, uh, the Lemon Law in, all of, in the aftermath of all that it did, did more to change the automobile marketplace than unsafe at any speed. Unsafe at any speed was a very huge contribution to, to public policy, but the Lemon Law far surpasses it and had much broader impact around the world. But let's go back to 1984. I think it's 84. That was when Lemon Law 2 passed. Am I correct? Correct. So, Spring of 84, yes. So now you would think, okay, the victory is won. But in fact, the real battle is only going to get worse. So what happens now? Well, what happened next 
is within a week or two weeks of the law of the of the law going into effect, uh, the automobile industry, all 27 foreign and domestic manufacturers, filed a constitutional challenge to the Connecticut Lemon Law program. That was a big deal. They wanted to just invalidate the program. They recognized that this program gave consumers a fair fair shake and equal footing and changed the dynamic. I have a I have a clip here from Bill Rubenstein, who's a former Connecticut State Commissioner of Consumer Protection, who summarizes the nature of that constitutional challenge. So let's listen to that. Galvanize together to start the legal challenge to, to, to Lemon Law 2 uh, and challenge the Lemon Law on half a dozen or more constitutional grounds, a full scale, full throated, full throttle The constitutional challenge was so important with such huge consequences for public policy that it went straight to the Connecticut Supreme Court. It bypassed all lower courts. And that never happened. It was settled probably within eight, within eighteen months or so. They we had to go through the process. The program was running, and they found some constitutional defects in the program. So we had to suspend the program for about six months. Legislatively, I went back and fixed it following session, and we put the program back in place after the in the court approved you know, what we'd done. So the car manufacturers take on the law in the court system. But that wasn't enough for them, was it? They they sought other ways to overturn this legislation. They they still have more weapons in their in their quiver. So it's constitutional. There is an arbitration process in place that is working. Consumers now have real recourse when they get one of these lemons. The manufacturers just aren't ready to let up. No, they're not. And at the same time, other states are looking at Connecticut's lemon law and saying. Yeah, that's a good thing, right? Oh, yeah. It, by by the mid-80s, it was on the books in at least 30 states, at least. So you would think that that would be a message to the automobile industry that there is a problem that needs to be redressed, and it's not the lemon law. It's the thing that caused the lemon. Right. It's, it's, it's their product. That's, right. That's the problem. It's their product and the way they market it. You are the person now who is nationally identified with lemon law. So That's you true. quickly get pulled out of the state arena into the national challenge to the Lemon Laws, right? Yes. What happened is is they went to the Federal Trade Commission, they the, being the auto manufacturers. They went to the White House first, then they went to the Federal, Federal Trade Commission. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to, the Federal Trade Commission, they wanted to preempt the state. They wanted to take over the Lemon Law arbitration process or the system in accordance with the Magnuson-Moss 703 rules and standards that had been promulgated back in the mid-70s. Those, those rules and standards had never really been implemented to any degree. They were most, mostly all in theory, but they figured, let's, let's get the FTC involved in this. Let's uh, put together uh, what they call the Reg Deg, Regulatory Negotiation Committee, with all interested parties. And let's see if we can come to some kind of compromise to take it away from this. So what the manufacturers are trying to do ostensibly is to take all the state lemon laws and meld them into one theoretically agreed upon national consumer protection law. 
yeah, take take away the, you can't, the the states would not be able to have their independent arbitration systems. We can get control of it with our influence and power that we have here in Washington and through the you know the connections we have with the FTC. We can have our own system. Take take away from those states that are being too aggressive. And I'm That's sure the ma- the manufacturers welcomed you into this process with open arms, right? No, that was a real battle. It was a real battle. Uh, they pulled a lot of dirty tricks with in that in that area, but I was able to wear them down. It took a, oh, maybe about eight months before the Federal Trade Commission would agree to let me on. I went down to to, to Washington. I interviewed all five Federal Trade uh, maybe four Federal Trade Commission members, including the chairman. Uh, I reminded them of Ronald Reagan's position, federalism, and how this is contrary to it. Oh, that's you know, right. I, this is in the years of the Reagan administration. When the federal government is dedicated to kind of devolving governmental authority back to the state, here they are trying to federalize a law that is working very well at state level. In a national marketplace. Fascinating. You know, take away states' efforts to protect their citizens. I mean, that's what they're, they try to do here. I lobbied the two expert facilitators that they had appointed as chairman. They were both very well-known nationally, a guy named John McClendon and uh, Gail Bloom. Anyway, they both recognized that I should be at the table because the, the, the group that they had put together, the FTC had put together to do these negotiations, did not include anybody from state legislatures. It included, you know, industry people, uh, some consumer people, and also, you know, uh, state, uh, some attorney generals and people of that nature. But it did not include any lawmakers, people who actually make the laws at the state level. So that was my argument. My argument is, you know, we're the ones that make the law. We should have a seat at the table. And finally, uh, they, they were forced to put me on. First, they rejected me. They rejected me a number of times, formally. And then I got the president what was of their, the national... What was their reason for rejecting you? That just seems counterintuitive. I, they thought I was too forceful an advocate. So you overcame that, and you do get on the the committee. So what happens then? We had 18 meetings in Washington, D.C. Over, over maybe a six-month period. The committee was divided into three subcommittees, and ultimately, I stood my ground as the representative of the uh, of the state legislatures, and I said, we're not interested in any preemptive, preemptive efforts. This is going to stay local. It's going to stay with the state. That's our position. And I got enough people to agree with me so that the reg neg was disbanded. That's amazing. That's what happened with that. At that point, was that the victory? I would say, yeah, that's, yes. That, I think that's kind of like, they folded up their, you know, they folded up their, their tents and, and, and went away uh, and decided that, you know, we can't we can't stop the states from doing what they're doing. So let's try and try and do something else. And then, and, and ultimately, the marketplace changed. The legal world changed. Uh, consumer protection changed. And uh, they ended up with a better product. Maybe they're more careful now because they no longer were insulated like they were pre-limit law days. I don't know. I like to think that. You know, it's been pretty smooth as far as I know. I, I left the legislature in 89, so I uh, kind of followed it from a distance. I, whenever something comes up nationally or whatever, people call me. Believe it or not, I got a phone call from France today. Some guy in France who's a former Connecticut resident from Greenwich wants to talk to me about the Lemon Law. Did he want to talk to you about the Lemon Law or the Lemon Law? <laughs> Probably the latter. <laughs> but anyway, that, that happened today. So... It must seem impossible that it's actually 40 years since the passage of Lemon Law 1. How do you feel that the Lemon Laws, that that this concept that you brought to life 40 years ago, 
How do you feel that it's influencing consumer rights and American industry today? I think it's reflected in my students. When I was an active professor, one of the first things I would do is tell my class about my background, because I, I taught political science at CCSU for a while, and I, t- I tell them about my background, and most of the students didn't hear of the Lemon Law, and I would say to them, go home and talk to your parents this weekend or whenever, and ask them if they know about it. They come back to the class the next week or the week after, and I'd say, by the way, anybody talk to their mom and dad? And they'd all raise their hands. They all did, and they all, all parents obviously knew all about it. You know, I, I think, you know, the limited law concept of trying to mediate, arbitrate, and stand behind your product, take care of your customer, I think that's permeated the marketplace in many, many areas. You now have limited laws for pets. You have limited laws for uh, both. The limited law is, is spread to many, many products. I, I was going to try and look it up to give you more examples, but they're out there. If you look into it at all, you'll see there's a lot of limited laws. So I think that just gives you a, a message about how the marketplace has changed and how our idea here in Connecticut has brought about different perspectives, different mindsets. Do you think that young people are less aware of the Lemon Law because they just naturally expect those kind of consumer protections to exist? Or do you think that I think they... that, yeah, I've, I've asked them that question in class, and I think it's a very good question, and I think that, that the answer is yes. I think they just expect things to work. But give you an idea of how the Lemon Law has permeated our society. You know, an urban definition of is, listen to this, Lemon Law. I got this off the computer. My wife got it for me. Urban Dictionary. In the first five minutes of a date, you have to decide if you want to commit to an entire night. If not, you're simply Lemon Law them and walk out. I've, I've had students use Lemon Law as a verb in my class. It says that the concept is deeply embedded into the culture, but the understanding of its origins and intent has maybe morphed over time, right? Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Like I said, I was shocked one day in class maybe five years ago when one of my students was talking about one of her friends or whatever, and she said, I, we lemon laud her or whatever. And I said, what do you mean you lemon laud her? She said, well, we're, we're not talking to her now. What's the legacy of the Lemon Law? You know, it seems to me that the types of protection authored into existence with the Lemon Law, that concept that consumers have a right to expect workable, merchantable, useful products has become standard. I I think there's a lot of truth to what you just said. I I mentioned all these letters and complaints that we received, and people, young people just shake their heads like, you know, I can't believe that. And I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, and I had a few my lemon owners come to class and talk to students about their experiences. And, you know, the young people just, it's foreign to them. They just expect everything to, to work. And if it doesn't work, just give it back and get your money back. They, that, that's a belief right now. Get your money back. Talk to any of the return departments all over the industry. You know, one of the best examples of that is probably Amazon, who has one of the easiest uh, refund policies in American business or in international business, and it's also made them one of the most successful companies in the world. It's just it's no big deal, uh, Walt, to return something now. I think the Lemon Law is it's a living legacy. It's something that is just there permanently uh, in the way we go about our lives. And I really didn't think that way until maybe the last six, seven years, but I, I've come to that conclusion. So as you look around the world today, if you were that young freshman legislator from 40 years ago, is there anything 
that would set your sights on as something in need of change? Is there a 21st century lemon law issue that would appeal to you? I would say right now that uh, at least back in our day, we were able to talk to each other, uh, Democrats, Republicans, you know, all the various different components of our society. We were able to communicate better, and uh, we got some things done. A lot of things did not get done, but right now it seems to be that that, that particular commonality or communication ability just seems to be lacking, and that's the thing that kind of concerns me the most. I have to tell you, I am I am with you 100% on that. And I think with it's, that, it's serious. It's very serious. John J. Woodcock III, this has been fascinating, enlightening, and um, refreshing. I thank you so much for taking this time to share with us the story of one of the life-changing laws of my lifetime. Well, thank so you much. for thank you so much. You know, for your thorough work and your job, I mean, your your recognition of it and, and telling the story, I really appreciate that very much. I think it's an important story that has to be told. To this day, I'm amazed, uh, uh, well, that no one has ever gone, as I'm aware of, has ever written a book about all this. It's I, uh, very, very ripe for uh, it, that kind of an undertaking. It is absolutely ripe. As, as I was saying earlier, the Archives and Special Collections at Central Connecticut State University at the LHU Library have the John J. Woodcock III uh, Lemon Law Records and Oral Histories, and it is it is an astonishing collection of documents that someone who is looking to either create a magnificent a PhD thesis or book, it's all there. It's waiting for you. It is. Uh, just go spend a day and see exactly what I'm talking about. John, thank I you agree. so much. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank John J. Woodcock III, Dan Brochu, Robert Doerr, Mark Giulietti, Bill Rubenstein, and the John J. Woodcock III Lemon Law Records and Oral History Collection at the Elihu Burritt Library at Central Connecticut State University's Archives and Special Collections. This is state historian Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.